Welcome back to another episode of the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast. I'm Jason P. Woodbury, an editor at Aquarium Drunkard, and each week I bring you a conversation with an artist about what makes their work work. Our guest this week practically invented the sound of Cosmish guitar. As a member of Noi, Harmonia, and an early incarnation of Kraftwerk, Michael Rother's fluid, emotive playing helped define the sound of Krautrock. As the music came up out of Germany's avant-garde underground in the late 60s and headed for the cosmos in the 1970s. In 2019, he released a box set called Solo, which documented the first half of his solo career. And on September 4th, he follows that up with Solo 2, which sees his work through the 80s, into the 90s, into the 2000s. As an added bonus, it features a brand new record as well, called Dreaming, which finds him returning to the cosmic pastoral sounds of his classics. Michael was kind enough to join us over Skype this week for transmissions to discuss his musical youth in India and his collaborations with the founding fathers of Krautrock. He also touched on his experiences with younger musicians who've been influenced by his playing, people like John Frusciante of the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Steve Shelley of Sonic Youth. Rother is a very warm guy to talk with, and I hope you enjoy our talk as much as I enjoyed having it. We'll speak more on the other side of this one. Thanks for tuning in to Transmissions. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on the Transmissions Podcast. I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jason. I'm happy to be here. So how how are you uh, holding up in these strange times? Have you still mostly been uh, quarantined at the moment? Um, No. The quarantine that hit me um, lasted until June the 20th. Um, I returned from a concert in Austria on March 12th, I think, and then things really got uh, went um, sort of crazy. And but unfortunately, in Germany, the lockdown wasn't as severe as uh, other cities in in Europe experienced, like Spain or uh, Madrid and um, P- Paris, for instance. I could always jump on my bike and um, after working during the day and uh, could run along the river. So I was really in a luxury situation compared to many, many people. But the good thing was, I mean, after uh, coronavirus crashed all the concert plans and the tour plans, all the concerts were canceled. I had the chance to concentrate on recording a new album and working on the the CD box set. I would have had a difficult time trying to fit that in um, along my tour life because this always just, you know, it disrupts life and you have to prepare and then you're exhausted when you come back. But... Um, I used that time, and it was uh, that was actually rather fortunate. Um, the label, Grönland label, Grönland Records, 
um, had the idea to re to release a box set, the second um, solo two box set in autumn, and we discussed the ideas what to include, and. It was uh, sort of natural for me because I had all this material in the back of my mind already for many years. And then I said, well, I will also try to finish a new album. And the, the, the end of the story was that well, the moment I was finished working on my new album, Dreaming, and the box set, the borders were opened. And so I could hop in my car and drive to my partner. She lives in Pisa in Italy. You know, every, the borders were closed. And so I'm, now you're talking to me, I'm in Pisa. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't realize that. That's nice. So, so this new album, uh, The Dreaming, you, you uh, composed uh, most of this and recorded this in quarantine? Um, actually, it, it stems from a, uh, a time in the late 90s when I started recording a new album in 97 and I met um, the British singer and ch great cello player Sophie Joyner, whom I recorded. And that session, it was, the, it was so, we were so productive. I had prepared about 75 um, sketches for songs. And I asked her to pick numbers. That's I wanted to include this um, element of chance. And um, then I started working on the my last solo album, uh, Remember the Great Adventure. And after Remember was finished, and I, uh, I went on to, and I enjoyed very much playing live all over the world. I traveled to Japan, to China, to Russia, um, unfortunately, not to the States. <laughs> Maybe we'll, we'll touch that later. Um, there, there are certain obstacles that make it hard for yeah. uh, non-US musicians to visit your country. But I really love playing live all over the world. And that's what I did with um, a lot of joy. And until now, the situation was there that concerts were no longer possible right and i always remember that the session had i had so many ideas and sketches and um that were worthy of checking again i i always knew that i would return to that session and this is where the point where i started working in march late march this year and I took those sketches and um, completed the compositions, formed them in a way that appeared to me now, hmm. and added, um, that was very important this time. I, In the end, when the, the structure of the songs was finished, uh, the structure, I played live guitar. So this was a, a change it. from the last one, the last album. So, um, you know, this, this new album, it feels tied to the albums that were included in this box set. It's almost part of the, the, the lineage of, of that. So that's why it made sense to include it with the Solo 2 box set for you? Um, well, 
this is of course always um, um, for the listener to decide, does sure. it uh, make sense in my line of work? Uh, for me, this is never a question. It is, of course, part of my work in progress, which is evolving, which has, uh, of course, if you compare it to what I play live, uh, or what I've been playing live these past 10, 15, 20 years, is um, more calm. Live, I enjoy doing the fast forward racing music and tracks from Neu and um, yeah, speeding things up and trying to make people start dancing and go crazy, which strangely, or maybe not strangely, but surprisingly and to my great joy happened in China. And when I went to China in 2016, I didn't know what to expect because uh, uh, I have no experience of whether my music is available in China, where it is. And so when we started playing and I noticed that the crowd was jumping around just like um, at good concerts they do all over the world, um, it sort of, it was a great moment and just encouraged me to believe, go on believing that the music is um, not limited to certain cultures, to certain languages. Anyway, but the live music is a bit different, but I have this um, sort of um, 180 degrees landscape of possible music that could be abstract um, sound, that mm. could be very rhythmical music, but also what I enjoy very much, and especially in this uh, in this period in spring 2020, um, very mostly soft music, which um, uh, focuses on delicate structures and the wonderful voice, of course, of Sophie Joyner, which uh, blew me away 20 years ago. And when I started listening to the material again this year, it, it, the same thing happened. I was I'm so thrilled. And um, I was fortunate that the session went so well and she was willing to give me her voice. It's, it's lovely on this album. Uh, it's a very lovely sound, uh, as well as your guitar work, which is uh, very lush on this record. Um, I was reading about your tone, and uh, very often you don't run through an amplifier right? Was this direct into the board on this album for a lot of it? Uh, mostly, yeah. I, I hardly ever use an amplifier because, um, I don't know, it started already in the late 70s when I worked with Connie Plank. Mm -hmm. And um, I he showed me how to plug into his desk. And this is how I work these days. I run my guitar through um, a fuzz box and a compressor, mm -hmm. Keeley compressor. Um, and the processing, of course, happens also. I send it into a delay and, you know, FX, FX machine. But yeah, um, the distortion comes from my box. And yeah. um, I sometimes, I know that playing on, a, on an amp adds a certain quality, which is maybe different, but 
that's maybe also part of the story. I want to sound a bit different. Sure, <laughs> sure. So, you know, when quarantine started, uh, there were all these articles about the strange dreams that people were having. Uh, and I guess, you know, it feels like a good time for an album like The Dreaming, which sort of syncs up to that specific time. Do you have a pretty vivid dream life generally? Um, yes, actually, I do. Um, I, you know, it wasn't like, oh, now I have to, um, I have to make an album that focus on dreaming. Yeah. Um, that was at the end when I finished working on the album and I thought, um, okay, where, which title should I choose? And then suddenly it was dreaming and I thought, yeah, that makes sense. And, um, yeah. I guess my, if you call it dream life, um, uh, is sometimes very vivid. I have, um, of course, I I have all the types of dreams which other people also have: pleasant dreams and also some scary dreams. To start with, the scary dream, one of my typical. I mean, some some politicians may have a, a nightmare dream that they stand in a uh, in front of an audience and they're naked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for me, which actually comes from experiences which I made playing live, one of my typical um, less pleasant dreams is to be find myself on a stage, the people are waiting for me to start playing, and then I notice, wait a minute, my gear is not even set up. I haven't connected all the plugs <laughs> because it's you know it takes half an hour to uh, to connect all the gear, and that is one of the one of the less pleasant dreams. Another one is to be on tour, and I remember one very uh, very clear dream of being at a huge airport. It must have been in China, and. There were so many people and suddenly my bandmates were gone and nobody could tell me how to reach the gate. And so I walked around this huge airport and suddenly I reached the end of the airport and I was in a village and I missed the flight. Yeah. So that's also, of course, uh, when you're traveling and especially when you're, you have schedules, uh, it's always something that worries you are we going to make it to the airport in time and so that is one of the also the typical dreams but then i have wonderful dreams which are more pleasant of course of water i maybe you know that i have a very um close relationship with water i've i've lived next to water for all my life yeah and um, I enjoy the element. Uh, it's mystery. It's it's it just fascinates me. The life beneath the surface of water, like an ocean, and, and to imagine uh, the secrets that lay lie uh, underneath the surface. Yeah. Um, great landscapes of beaches and open spaces, and also other dreams. Um, I suddenly meet people, people that have passed away, like Dieter Möbius, for instance. I remember having this dream just a few months ago. Um, maybe that's how we called him, Dieter Möbius. He was there 
and of course in a dream you're not surprised i was he was very alive you know yeah. and yeah so, and other family members people who were close to you suddenly show up in your dreams and they are there uh, we all know we don't know anything about um what happens after people die when we die right um but um in my dreams this is a, a recurrent element of meeting people when i'm not traveling and enjoying wonderful landscapes so yes dreaming is uh, a strong point in my life and mostly it's pleasant not always but yeah great who who is that on the album cover the family that we see on the album cover that's actually uh, my family uh, my father took the photo you see my brother on the left me as a 10 or 11 year old maybe 10 years old and on the right it's my mother yeah and we were at the beach in karachi pakistan where we lived uh, from 1960 until 1963. And um, yeah, this has always been like a treasure in my archive, this photo. Um, all of my family are no longer around. Mm -hmm. You know, they are still in my heart, but they are no longer around. And I remember when uh, we had this meeting with the graphic designer Walter Schönauer, who worked on the um, on the design, mm -hmm. and he noticed we were going through material of my archive, and he noticed when that photo came up, a print of that photo, how emotional I became, and and he said, "Yeah, that's a that's a great photo," and I said, "Yes, of course it is," and it it was a very uh, I mean, music is very personal. You can't get much more personal than with the music you release. Mm -hmm. And this very personal memory of um, a wonderful time, I think that made total sense for me. Yeah. So you grew up, uh, you spent a few years of your youth in Pakistan. What, what brought your parents there? What, what, what was their reason for, for heading to, to Pakistan? My father worked for airlines. In the beginning, he worked for um, the predecessor of uh, British Airways. It was called um, BEA, British European Airways, in Hamburg and Munich. And then he uh, switched to Lufthansa and we moved to um, Wimslow. That's a small town near Manchester in the UK. And then from England, we moved to Pakistan from Pakistan, uh, he he was in charge of the uh, station. The Lufthansa airline opened the Far East connection in 1960. So this was the route that went all the way to Tokyo. Mm. And he was in charge of um, West Pakistan and East Pakistan, it was called back then, which is now Bangladesh or has been already for many years. Right. And um, when we when we moved to Düsseldorf, um, this was, I think, meant only as a sort of um, short period because we were talking already about moving on to the U.S. Um, he would have 
taken some um, station there, um, or or Jamaica was also on the cards. But my father grew sick. He 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 had cancer and he died in '65. And so the family that um, period of travels and changes moves stopped in 1963 when we arrived in Dusseldorf and I finished school there and the story continued in Dusseldorf as yeah. we know I think <laughs> well yeah and at, that's at that at that point you know you you start to become very involved in music uh, but did the music of Pakistan you know what did you uh, did you hear things on the radio or did you did you buy records when you lived there uh, records no yeah. actually um, my brother already was, uh, he lived in, in Munich. He just came to visit for some weeks, several times a year. And he always brought, he, he was 10 years older than me nearly, and he brought little vinyl singles along. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one one single was Chuppy Checker, Let's Twist Again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was great. And another one was a version of Apache, by a Swedish guitar player. The, you know, the original, I think, was from The Shadows. And I guess the guitar sound of The Shadows, that appealed to me already very much. The music you heard in the streets was Arabian music. And um, there was, it's hard to imagine these days, I guess, especially for young people that back then, there was no connection to the world. You were in some place and that's what you had. Right. The local radio station played um, Pakistan music, uh, Indian music, mostly uh, music from Pakistan. But I remember hearing so much music. There were individual musicians walking in the streets, coming to your house or bands even playing. Yeah. And I have... I, I remember clearly being quite drawn to that music, um, thrilled by the music because, of course, I couldn't understand the structure. It, it, it was just a succession of rhythmical elements and melodies, but it had this hypnotical um, uh, feeling. It was like, yeah, hypnotizing, and it just seemed to go on forever. Some this element of um, a, a music that just goes on forever, you know, that stayed with me. And I think somehow without taking the musical character of that, er that time and that uh, culture, the idea of an endless music that, um, right. that it resurfaced 10 years later. Yeah. So by the time you, uh, you, you, joined very briefly Kraftwerk in the early 70s, 1971, I think. Um, yes. But uh, before that, you were in a band called um, Spirit of Sound, or was it Spirits of Sound? Actually, it, Spirit would have been better, but we were, our real name was Spirits of Sound. Spirits of Sound, and, yeah. Yes. What, um, but, what did that band sound like? Yeah, okay. Really, I think you could imagine with that kind of name, wow, they must have been interesting. The truth is, I was I joined the band when I was 15. 
You know, I was like a huge fan of the new British bands, mostly bands coming from Britain, uh, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Kings, and all that stuff, which was so different from everything you heard in Germany at the time. It was like, wow, you know, it was exciting. Even today when I hear all day and all of the night of the Kings or You Really Got Me, or many of the Beatles tunes, Stones tunes, I get goosebumps because the energy of that time was, it, it's still its still there, at least for me. Yeah. And so um, for me, it was <sighs> me and my friends in the, in the class, we were, there was a, a, a bunch of musicians, sort of musicians, and we were equally excited about that stuff. And I started playing guitar and this band already existed before I joined them. Um, but then they noticed that I was a guy who could play melodies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I became the, the lead guitar player. And well, to be quite honest, we in the beginning, we were um, simply copycats. We co tried to sound like the Beatles, like the Stones. Sure. And of course, growing up, becoming 16, 17, then suddenly Jimi Hendrix. Before Jimi Hendrix, it was already Cream and Eric Clapton and that kind of music, which impressed me a lot. Yeah. And then in 67, uh, Jimi Hendrix appeared on the scene. And um, I think it's true, not only for me, but for many, many musicians at the time, the world was not the same anymore. After Jimi Hendrix appeared on the scene, you really thought, wow, this is possible with the guitar. And, you know, so I was a huge fan. But um, in our own band, we tried to um, stretch the boundaries, uh, you know, to become more innovative, to become more independent. But also, to be honest, we didn't manage to overcome the roots of the music that we had started with. So sure. this, this, it, it sort of grew in me this desire to change this and I became dissatisfied with the music of Spirits of Sound. And I was searching, I guess, if you look at the year 1970, that was when I was no longer really willing to um, continue working with the, the music structures of Anglo-American music. Mm -hmm. And uh, some kind of um, stroke of luck led me into the Kraftwerk studio. I didn't even know the band. So it was just um, a case of uh, another musician asking me, uh, Michael, I, I have this invitation to go to the studio and we're going to make some film music, I guess. Would you like to join me? We were on a demonstration in town, demonstrating against some, um, some structures we were not happy about. I was working in a mental hospital at the time, mm. doing my service as a conscientious objector, you know. Also something that is 
or maybe nowadays with all the tension around the world, um, maybe it's even it's becoming more understandable how the feeling was in the late 60s, early 70s with Cold War being very hot. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. Um, and uh, the Vietnam War, uh, that really bothered us. And um, I remember being very, very determined. I will not join the military. It was um, um, compulsive. I think that's what you say. You had to, you were drafted and then um, you had to join the military unless you could prove that your conscience forbade you uh, to pick up a, a rifle. And, and so, they tried to trick you. Oh, they tried to trick you into, into saying the wrong thing that would force you to join? That's right. It was a court hearing. It was really like I was... Um, um, what is it, a defendant? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I had to explain to the judge, and there were three people sitting on the panel, and I remember having this very nasty discussion with the guys about, I was maybe naive at the time, I was 18, I think, 18, 19, um, about world politics, but the basic idea was no war. I'm not going to go to war. I'm not going to pick up a gun. I'm not going to kill people. Yeah. No way. Yeah. And they try to, you know, try to, yeah, trick you to into saying something that suddenly made you look like a liar or something who, who was just a coward who didn't want to, for comfort reason, to join the army. So were you, did you have long hair and the whole outfit and I mean, standing in the courtroom is was that your look yeah um <laughs> they were getting longer i i was i finished school in 1969 and yeah i remember also already the teachers were not very happy i was to be honest i was quite a good pupil um i had a hard time adjusting to german schools because i lacked of uh, five years or four years of schooling, German schooling. And so I had to catch up. That was difficult. And but I managed. And then in the end, I was quite OK at school. And they were disappointed because they in the beginning, I was this uh, polite young boy who um, didn't cause problems, who didn't uh, contradict them. And that changed, like the whole spirit of 68 in Europe with the student rising and, you know, all the unrest that happened. And suddenly there were some very conservative teachers. And so we started picking fights, picking up fights with them and not agreeing, not being willing to accept, follow their ideas. I know the teacher in maths, uh, math was always one of my favorite subjects. And I think he also liked me, but he was so unhappy. Michael, how can you accept this, this craziness of the students? Yeah. Students, you know, in Germany, they were very active politically. And yeah, my hair were growing longer. And then when I went to do my service in that mental institute, I had hair down 
all the way. Yeah. So yeah, that's the image. <laughs> All right, let's take a minute now to hear about our sponsor. Creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms might help people find your work, but they don't always get you paid. With Patreon, you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per-stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care most, your fans. Since Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers, you can skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken, so if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, a creative person of any kind, sign up on Patreon.com now. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com and change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve. Alright, let's get back to transmissions. So you can see a little bit of in that the Beat Club performance of you with uh, the late Florian Schneider who passed away uh, very recently, yes. you know, and I, I, I'm sorry for that. Um, but uh, there's this performance where it's you and, and Klaus Stinger who you'd go on to form Noi with. And uh, it's very radical sounding. It doesn't sound like the Kraftwerk music that most people are familiar with. Um, but it sounds like it was born out of that moment of cultural rebellion. Were you drawn to that idea of let's create a new kind of, you know, musical expression? Um, yes. I mean, the, the answer could be very long because it also, if you asked Florian Schneider, he would give you, he would have given you a different answer with different um, details, Klaus Dinger as well. Right. Um, we agreed on that's what we what I found out when I entered the Kraftwerk studio and met uh, Ralf Hütter, the the now remaining Kraftwerk main guy, mm -hmm. and he was playing music along with the drummer, and I thought, wait a minute, this sounds like the the Middle European kind of harmonic melodic structure, which. I think is where I want to go. And so I picked up a bass guitar and I, I jammed with Ralph and we all, um, I think had this impression, okay, there was something interesting happening. And that's why I was invited to join the band. But I think what Florian also Ralph, but he left uh, to go back to university. Uh, he didn't um, play with us live, but what we, were totally in agreement was that we wanted to leave all the Anglo-American rock and pop music structures behind, which is maybe very ambitious. Maybe it's not even possible because the erase button doesn't really work that way. But right, <laughs> with, you, you can you can you know if you're really uh, convinced that you have to find new structures and leave the traditions behind. That's where we met Florian Schneider, Klaus Dinger and I, and 
um, I can say for myself, I went down. I, I I used to play the the fast finger guitar licks, like maybe not so great as Jeff Beck or <laughs> Eric Clapton, certainly not that, or Jimi Hendrix, but that was the idea of yeah. my playing when I was uh, still in Spirits of Sound. But I dropped all of that. And so it was, okay, it's one note. We go back to minimal structures. We deconstruct sort of the whole idea of this bombastic music that was very popular and try to um, create music with these simple elements, try to express possibilities of dynamic and um, of course the sound was also um, important, but it was a clear intention of being different, different from every music that was around, not only American or British, also German. And I accept if you, if people tell me, well, you were very, very ambitious. Yes, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you didn't last very long in craft work because you and, and Klaus Stinger decided you were going to do something very different. Um, and Noy is obviously, uh, um, when you talk about that minimalism, that's just like the core of it. But there's something interesting to me about Noy, and I think that they that your that group um there's a reason that it influenced so many you know punk bands and so many rock bands because there was a, a specific energy and aggression to that group um did that you know uh, uh when you started working with Klaus was that something you noticed that the two of you had this ability to create on one hand these beautiful minimal melodies that you're doing and then on his end a little bit more of a, a rebellious, like a rock idea, but but removed from the bombast and just the drive, you know? Yeah, I think that's quite fair to say, Klaus. Um, we we agreed, like also on the Neu albums, that's um, something I hear uh, quite often that people think we were in discussion about the music and we had fights about the music. That was not the case. We were really, we knew what the other one could contribute to the picture. Yeah. And we both knew that, uh, well, I knew that I couldn't do the things Klaus did and the other way around, it was, I guess, similar. And Klaus, that's the way he played drums. He was so strong-headed he you know he just crashed through the door or through the wall and he kept on pulling and pushing and uh, a bit later the element of frustration also came into his life in the beginning it was more i think joyful craziness yeah which klaus also had but there were first there was um, um a love that went wrong a love affair, a girlfriend that uh, was taken away from him, sort of. That's how uh, the 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 anger of attract like negative land comes from. Yeah, you know, he was very frustrated by that. But in 1974, when we recorded Noise 75, he had already 
run into some serious problems um, with um, financial um, ventures. He started a label and that didn't go well. And he, he that's why you can hear him screaming in Hero, fuck the company, fuck the press. And he yeah. was unhappy about so many people and um, his life. But for me, a track like Hero is a very powerful engine for movement. I, I always saw this more as a very powerful movement that rushed to the horizon and I could put my guitars on it and then just fly away. Yeah. And, yeah. and Klaus added with his very strong vocals. It's one of my favorite tracks of Neu, definitely. Um, I, I can recall, I clearly recall sitting with Connie Plank in the, in the, at the mixing desk when Klaus was recording the vocals and his frustration, he just, the first flush was so convincing and that's what you hear on the album. Mm. This was what he did the first time. Yeah. So the tape ran and off we go. And he tried to improve it with a, in a second go, which was more organized but less powerful. Yeah. And but the first the first go when he started singing, I remember looking at Connie Plank and he was looking at me, and we both knew this is it. This is the recording we need. Yeah. And so yes, Klaus had he also had a soft side. Um, it's it's not only that he added the craziness, but we we had this common field. It's quite a big portion of the whole picture which we we had in common. But yeah, we were experts on the far out. <laughs> <laughs> well, so and so then after well, Noi and your group Harmonia, you know, there's overlap. There's times where you're working on an album and then you're working with Harmonia, which was you with Mobius and Rodelius, but there's a big shift when the Harmonia stuff starts because Harmonia has this peaceful quality, um, this very idyllic, tranquil, you know, kind of quality um, that continues with the work you did, obviously with Brian Eno and Harmonia, you've got, you know, Connie Plank in the mix. And for a couple of years, you seem to really be in this universe of this very beautiful, peaceful sounds, you know, um, including the record that you made, uh, the, the, the cluster record that you helped produce, uh, Zuckerson, yeah, okay. is that we'll you come say? to that. Yeah. Zuckerson. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We, we, can, we can touch that or maybe I should answer that first. No, please do. Um, yeah. Uh, because Zuckerzeit is wrongly, um, um, attached to me. It's, um, you know, I didn't produce it. It's, it was their way of saying thank you to me for um, letting them use my gear. When I was away recording Noise 75, yeah. and the two guys um, used my, my four-track machine, which we also used with Brian Eno and sound machines, etc. And they decided to say co-produced by Michael Rother, and I never asked for that. I, I don't even know if I knew it before it was released. But 
the deeper truth is, of course, that we influenced each other. So whether I produced it or I just gave them ideas which they transformed into the cluster album, which was in in the in the sound quite different from the one before we started Harmonia. So yeah, they, and also the influence I the influences I picked up from working with Vidalius and Möbius, they went into um, Noise seventy five, and also they they followed me along my path. You know, it was this idea of uh, giving inspiration back and forth of meeting. But do you know the story how Harmonia started? Because it, it it sounds a bit confusing, like you were working on Neu, but you were also working Harmonia. Um, the truth was that Neu was a, a real studio concept. It was not a band. Klaus Dinger and me, you know, we tried to do, I think, two concerts together. I used um, a tape machine with pre-recorded string bass and stuff. The people did not, they were not willing to listen to that kind of, that was not real music, you know, uh, for most people. Sure. And we were also not happy with that, but the musicians we found in Düsseldorf, they just didn't fit into the picture, which was now looking back only logical because of course we couldn't find anyone because it was the music of Klaus and me and we we tried to be different from all the other musicians so why should they suddenly why should there be musicians who were um, able to contribute the right stuff and then there was this um, invitation to do a tour to to the UK, where the uh, label in in London, United Artists, they sent someone over to a concert noited in Düsseldorf, and then we had this problem. Okay, we we'd like to do the tour, but not with these people we found so far, and that's when I remembered the cluster people, because we played together concerts um, when I was in Kraftwerk. And of course, Connie was also involved with in cluster. And I I remembered especially one track called Im Süden, mm. which um, sort of gave me this impression, this could work on a melodic level. You know, the sound is interesting, but I was also very much looking for someone who could help me recreate some melodic uh, elements on stage. And so that's why I picked up my guitar and drove to Cluster, to Redelius and Möbius, and started working with them. I jammed with Redelius and fell totally in love with what he played. And yeah, the the result was I decided to focus on harmonia because that was much more thrilling for me at the moment, at the time. And I think in retrospect, it is quite clear because with harmonia, I could create music that also worked live. The three of us 
-hmm. Not always. Sometimes the concerts were boring, I guess. We didn't find anything, especially in the beginning when we tried to invent music on stage, you know. <laughs> sure, uh, sure. But, um, for instance, on the first Harmonia album, you have this track called, um, what's it called? Uh, why, why do I bring it up if I can't remember them? Orvorm, that's the name, yeah. Orvorm, which is a, a five-minute edit of a two-hour-long concert. And it was, I think, one of the first sort of concerts we played for people that lived in our uh, in the area. It was only maybe 10 people attending. And it was exactly an example of what I meant with we were torturing these people because we, you know, we were searching and searching and we couldn't find the real, uh, we couldn't get it together. Yeah. But then after one hour and 55 minutes or somewhere along the line, very late, suddenly this part which is now Orvorm, which is available as the track Orvorm. This suddenly happened. It just came together from different sources. Everyone, Rodelius, Möbius and I, we suddenly had this flow. It yeah. was, we had this, a grip on this idea. And um, um, it's, Maybe it's one of my most, it's my favorite, part of my favorite collection of music. Um, you couldn't, I think I couldn't create this on purpose. Like you couldn't start going to the studio and say, okay, now we're going to do Orvorm. Yeah. That. Yeah. This was the result of uh, an hour, two hour long search. And yeah, some elements that we couldn't control were suddenly there. But um, sorry, I got distracted, but this is a very important memory for me if I look back at the time with Rodelius and Möbius. Yeah. It was, it was very, it was a, a wonderful uh, way of life there, which also appealed to me, you know, the um, very different from Dusseldorf, because Very, you, you were in a you were in a new place, right? You were in uh, Forst, which is like you had a well. It's where you are most of the time, right? You know where you've got the river there, and it's very pastoral and bucolic. It's a very different feel, I'm sure, than the city. Yeah, um, and also the liberties we had were very important. It was um, the house we occupied, no, it was actually, it was not uh, taken by force. It was given to us to live in. Um, <laughs> um, that, that, that structure is maybe 400 or more years old. And I remember being so happy that I could take a sledgehammer, I think is that the word? And I removed a wall that divided, you know, one big room into two small rooms. And when Rodelius and Möbius said, you can, you could uh, take this room. And yeah, and then I decided to just remove that middle. It was not a, a, a wall space. that supported. Yes. And the, uh, this is a, a kind of a lifestyle you could not expect in a city when there's a, a, a regular 
uh, how you say, landlord who would tell you something if you yeah. decided to remove a wall, you know, without well, giving the consent. Well, so for a few years, um, you know, you worked with Harmonia, you worked with Klaus, you worked with Connie Plank, Brian Eno, you start making your own records with Connie and uh, Jackie Liebeseit from uh, Cannes. But this box set, Solo 2, it features records where all of a sudden with 1982's Lust, you were making the records on your own. You know, this was just just your expression. And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about how that transition happened from working with this extended creative group to, to, to going it uh, truly solo for, for a few of these records. Um, I think it was quite a logical um, development for me, at least. Um, in 76, Rodelius and Möbius decided to um, stop working as uh, in Harmonia. So I was suddenly stranded. I didn't have a band. And um, I was forced to go solo, which never was my intention. Um, but um, luckily, Jackie Liebezeit, Yaki as I call him, called him in German, um, he was willing, interested in working with me, and he joined me at Connie Planck's studio. And the good thing about Connie was that he he was not the kind of producer who tried to keep his tricks secret. You know, he, he, he had the idea of enabling the musician to understand and also to work at the desk. And so he showed me stuff, I mean, of course, I don't have the education as a sound engineer, which um, later on made it a bit difficult when I was able to buy all the um, the expensive professional gear. And I just, you know, because I was so successful with the first three solo albums and what always, I mean, the, 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 the collaboration with Connie was always great. And I know how much I owe him for Harmonia, for Neu, and also especially also for my solo albums. But what always bothered me was the limited time that was available to work on music. And the development of my gear, like first having just a mono cassette player, then buying a TIAC for channel um, semi-professional recording instrument. Do you know that machine? It, it's the one we recorded Tracks and Traces on mm -hmm. for, for channels, for musicians. That was perfect. Yeah. And, um, and so the next step was, okay, now I can afford to have the real machines. And that's what... It was like just a logical uh, next step. So I decided to buy um, the 24-track, the professional two-track. MCI was the brand, it, I think American brand, and Connie also had the same machine. So I was on the safe side and the same dealer. And um, for me, it was the goal, ultimate goal, to have the ability to work without a clock ticking away, you know, and just 
just have it like I have my guitar and the, the other instruments. The studio was sort of an instrument. It's it's just a tool to create sounds and to yeah to to create music. And so it was not a decision against Connie Blank when I decided in 1981, I think it was, when I started recording Fernwärme, my fourth solo album, mm -hmm. and invited Jackie to come to Forst. And I remembered the microphoning technique Connie used, and I recorded Jackie, um, a professional sound engineer would have done it in a different way, I guess. Sure. Um, and Connie had a great ability of uh, recording drums. But I enjoyed the freedom, the luxury of having unlimited time. And nobody told me, okay, now tomorrow morning, we have to have this um, tape ready. Uh, I just let the music decide when it was ready, sort of. And so that was the situation with Fernwärme. And the year later, when I um, di discovered the Fairlight music computer instrument, MCI, um, this offered newer possibilities and also of um, creating drum patterns and rhythmical structures. And so I, saw, I thought, okay, maybe I should go give it a try. And it was not a decision against uh, Jackie Liebetzeit by no way, no, no means, you know. Jackie is, um, I guess he's the best drummer, to be honest. Uh, I've had the, 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 the luck, the fortune to work with. Oh, there are some great drummers like Steve Shelley, Klaus Dinger, and um, to name only those yeah but, um, yeah Jack, Jackie was a magician yeah so uh, and so oh, that sorry. was the reason why no that was the reason why I, I sort of decided okay I will now take the music the Fairlight music instrument and develop everything on my own it you know it was like if you compare it to other fields of art nobody Maybe it's a bit awkward to, to compare, but nobody would discuss with a painter why he paints the paintings on his own. Why don't you uh, take in someone who can paint bridges or skies? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, so this box set also includes uh, a record you made in the 1990s, uh, Esperanza, which is kind of a, mm -hmm. a long gestation. but. As I understand it, in the 1990s, you know, following this very long productive period, you found yourself starting to become a little bit bored with the guitar. Is that a fair way to put it? Yes, uh, definitely. I, or maybe the more positive way of expressing is that I became more and more interested in electronic sounds like the, the world of um, the synthesizers which were available then. It's always about finding tools to create certain sounds and designing music with. But yeah, in a way, after playing guitar for um, 35 or I don't know how many years it was then, many years, yeah. I sort of 
put the guitar uh, away back. And I even did a tour to the States where, where I didn't take my guitar along, which somehow <clears throat> didn't please the people, which I found out later on the internet. There were some comments, great to see the guys, but oh, Rota didn't bring his guitar. What a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that was a time when I sort of stopped playing the guitar. And um, in 97, when I started working on Remember the Great Adventure, I was in that in that uh, period when I was only looking towards electronic uh, instrumentation. and But this has changed. I mean, I rediscovered my love for guitar already when I started playing live in the early 2000s. Did, did playing with people like uh, John Frusciante from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, and well, actually with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Flea and Omar Rodriguez Lopez from the Mars Volta, did playing with guitarists who were very influenced by your guitar technique, did that, uh, did that have anything to do with you sort of feeling like, uh, hey, I came up with some pretty good guitar. I'm pretty good on the guitar. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's flattering, but I think um, it's a claim I would never um, utter. It's um, no, that's my job. job. <laughs> okay, no, I think John and especially uh, Omar um, Rodriguez Lopez. He uh, he has other heroes. I think yeah, definitely. Sure. He, he's a very uh, sweet guy, and it was a very special moment when we suddenly I found myself jamming with them at this concert in Hamburg, the Red Hot Chili Peppers playing. Yeah, this is, it has a story, you know, how this happened. Um, but um, it only happened because John had been coming to Germany already for a few times, telling a specific journalist who interviewed him every time that he enjoyed my music and uh, you know and then the the journalist decided to oh wait a minute next time i will make a meeting of these two guys possible and so he set up a meeting uh, for an article in the leading music magazine and then that's how john and i met at the chili pepper concert before the chili pepper concert in hamburg in 2003 and that was also a very unique, very special occasion. I remember John coming into the interview room and he brought along a piece of paper with many questions he wanted to ask me about how did you do this sound? How did you play this guitar? Yeah. And so the interviewer was suddenly out of the picture, but he, <laughs> he, was, he was still happy, I think, that he made that a meeting possible. And later on, when they played and John invited me to listen to the concert uh, from the back of the stage so that I could have a great view, I was standing next to the monitor guy. Um, and then suddenly they started jamming and John came to the back and started waving. And I turned around, I was a bit surprised. What, is something wrong? And there was nobody behind me. <laughs> and then I realized that he was actually prompting me, asking me to come on stage. And after um, after 
a first, no, I can't do that. But then I decided, okay, he's such a nice person. And okay, I just took one of his guitars and I went on stage. And that was very special. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this new record, The Dreaming, it has the guitar, it has the electronics. It's very much a, a result of, I think, this entire journey. So it makes a lot of, uh, it's very nice to have this on the box set as sort of a, a way to contextualize this long this long run that you've been up to. And uh, and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me about all of this. It's a, it's a great honor. Oh, thank you. I'm. I'm. Um, I don't know what is it. Uh, I, I don't feel ashamed. No, I feel. Um, what is it? Proud. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's those words are very kind. So uh, no, your words are very kind, and it's my pleasure to talk about the music. And of course, um, I I hope that people will discover the box set and the new album, and. Um, I'm personally, I'm very happy with the way this work turned out and um, the guitars I added because they were very important from the, from the beginning, like I already mentioned. It was clear that the, the element of guitar with all the possibilities of variation, slight variation of inaccuracies, that's very important. You know, the um the spontaneous decisions while you play guitar this is different from when i uh, produce electronic stuff it's um much more precise but the guitar adds uh, a level that is um well i think it's it it's how it's supposed to be and i'm i'm happy i played the guitars only once you know i think this is also an um, sort of a decision, a conceptual decision. You know, record, yeah. you have an idea what you want to do and then you hit record and then you play the guitar once and leave all the inaccuracies and maybe also some um, confusion. But yeah, leave it. And then the, this is like some, some salt, some spice, which um, gives the dish a special flavor makes it human too yes also yeah yeah well michael thank you so much i appreciate it greatly and uh uh uh, hope you have a great evening over there thank you and uh, good luck stay safe that's gonna bring this week's show to an end we appreciate you listening If you liked the show, rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts, or simply let your friends know that they can listen to Aquarium Drunkard's transmissions wherever they get podcasts. We're on all the major platforms, and of course, direct. You can just download the MP3 direct from AquariumDrunkard.com. Tune in to Justin Gage's weekly Aquarium Drunkard radio show on Sirius XMU, 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Channel 35, every Wednesday night, an expertly curated, beautifully mixed blend of sounds from Aquarium Drunkard founder Justin Gage. It's always one of my favorite radio shows. If you want to hold something from Aquarium Drunkard in your hand, you're going to want to get to an independent record store on August 29th for the release of the Lanyap Sessions, Volume 2. 
our series of vinyl records with org music. This features a bunch of your favorite artists covering their favorite artists. Artists like Six Organs of Admittance, Steve Gunn, Scott Hirsch, The Mountain Goats, Damian Gerardo, Aaron Ray, Joan Shelley, Mountain Man, Kevin Morby. Oh, yeah, it's really great. It's pressed on clear vinyl. I'm looking at it right now, and uh, it's a real joy to listen to. So you can head out to independent record stores on the 29th and check it out. And, of course, you can head over to AquariumDrunker.com and check out years and years' worth of these Lanyap sessions. Uh, They're so great. Absolutely one of my favorite parts of the site. Want to thank Andrew Horton for his help getting all the audio cleaned up this week. Thanks, Andrew. We appreciate you. And I appreciate you, listener. Thanks so much for sticking with us till the end. Hope you take care of yourself and catch us here next week on Transmissions with another talk for the weird times.